Simon. Hello, mate. How are we doing? I'm all right. You, are you all right? You don't sound very good. Well, well, I've had a cold, mate. You know, touch of man flu. So I've been poorly. Are you getting sympathy from home? Or? What do you think? No. <laughs> no, not okay. at all. But there you go. No. But I'm all right. I'm oh, all good. right, yeah. How's, the, uh, how's your tour rehearsals? Good. Yeah, rehearsals going well. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's sounding good. So, you know, oh, what great. more can you ask for? No, that's right. And yeah. you're out beginning of January? That's it, yeah. Yeah, cool. That's oh, Sixth, I think. First gig, Nuneaton, I think it is. Ah, excellent. Yeah. Oh, I'm so sure. we're looking I shall see to at that. the end. Of course. Don't forget my comps. Yes. No problem. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, back to matters in hand. Yes. Um, I think we both know our guests this evening yeah. um, via the Buster Jones Band. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But it would be really interesting to discover um, what this guy is... Um, what he's done before, because we know that he's done a fair bit in his musical yeah, career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that would be good to uh, know what he's doing now and what he's done in the past. And uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we'd like to introduce tonight's show is Mr. Richard Young. Well, it's great to have you here, Rich, because obviously we've seen you many times with Buster James, but uh, as, as John was saying, um, it'd be nice to sort of have a little, you know, a little, a little bit of what you've your history and how you got started, and uh, and where where you're going from there. Well, I was given piano lessons by Mrs. Edna Rigg, who was the wife of the mayor in Wisbech. So I started playing piano when I was about seven. Wow! Then I started playing guitar at about nine. Okay. And I kept doing that, and I had a lot of mates at school who who were a bit older than me, and they kept. That one of them had a brother that worked for Rolls Royce in America, and he bought all these albums back. That was, and I used to go around the house to the point where his mum used to throw me out, and play records all day Saturday and all day Sunday, oh, and cool. records I couldn't buy in this country, you know, like all the blues stuff, all the jazz stuff, all the, you know, early Joni Mitchell stuff, Tom Paxton, a lot of folk stuff, but a lot of blues, a lot of Muddy Waters, yeah. and then British stuff like you know Graham Bond organ. Organization, the yeah. first, the first Cream album and stuff like that, cool. and the first Hendrix Ooh. album. So, what sort of year would that be? Well, I was born in '54, so that would have been '67, '68, '69 when oh, I yeah. started this whole thing. Where I just and you're like a sponge when you're that age. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. That's you, true. And I, I didn't have a genre that I particularly liked. I liked rock. I liked folk. I liked jazz. I liked classical stuff. And having a resource, this guy. He went to America. He'd come back literally with armfuls of records. Yeah. And he had a great stereo system with a valve amplifier and two beautiful wooden speakers. Nice. And he used to sit in this front room with a couple of Echo Ranger guitars and a piano. Uh, Echo Ranger was the guitar of choice in those days. It was about 30 quid. It had a bolt on neck. It was made in Italy. It never went out of tune. However hard you hit it, you could roll, you could, you could use it as a baseball bat as well. And that, that's, that was how we all started, you know. Fantastic. So, um, like we saw, so that was a uh, sort of 67, did you say? Yeah, 67, 68, 69. So then, did you then 
uh, obviously you learned to play piano uh, yeah and guitar so did you then get on into a band what was your first band well we and where and where was where were you living where did you, where, where well was I was I was living just outside Wisbridge but you know which where, is, where, where is that? well it's 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 oh, it's the oh it's the hinterland of the world it's the land time forgot uh, it's awful and I used to live in a little village called Walsoken which used to be separate from Wispage, but Wispage has grown out like a great big cow pat mm. and absorbed everything around it including most of the villages but my piano teacher I said look I need to play some modern stuff so she bought me the songbook from Oklahoma and I said no no because I'd heard I'd been listening to do the, the thing that everyone does which is Radio Luxembourg late yeah, at yeah. night and I'd heard some boogie woogie piano and I bought this out I bought this book called How to Play, Ju How to Play Blues Piano by Junior Mance and I took it into my lesson and you know, I said, look, can I learn some of this? And she looked at me like I'd just pooed on her carpet. <laughs> you know, she said, no, that's just awful. Uh, you know, she was a bit like Maggie Smith, I suppose, really. Everything was, ugh. Um, so, uh, I love Maggie Smith. Yeah, so do I. But, <laughs> well, not in that way. Well, but, no, well, obviously. No, no, she's a very fine lady and a great actress. But yeah. anyway, so I so I started to teach myself stuff like that. And 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 I was learning the guitar at the same time. And yeah. we decided we were going to play at the school. We were going to play at Wispage Grammar School. Right. And we didn't have a name. And we had five songs in the set, one of which was our version of Spoonful by Cream, which was on the first album, which is we turned into a seven. 17 minute opus with the drum solo and everything because we hadn't had time to learn lots of numbers and and I remember Paul, my friend Paul Johnson, said, oh, what are we going to call ourselves? And he said, oh, I don't know. He said, oh, I'll go to the... He went out to make a cup of coffee or something. He said, I'll call us the first thing I see in the kitchen. So we became Pickle Gherkins. <laughs> and we played at the school. Excellent. Wow. And I suddenly realised, A, I really enjoyed it, and B, young ladies became slightly interested in me. For uh, a geeky, spotty youth, suddenly yeah. I, I suddenly became interested. So the pickled gherkins were well and truly, yeah, excellent. Yeah, that was that was my first, and then I joined a, a local band yeah. called Tangent, who ended up playing the US air bases. We had an agent in Peterborough called Steve Allen. He used to, and I was in the sixth form at the time. I was supposed to be doing A levels, but I was completely slumming it because I was knackered all the time because yeah, I was yeah. out he'd, he'd, yeah he'd send us out twice the weekends for the, and they were long shows they were like 3.45s or, or three one hour slots and yeah. if you were late on the bandstand they'd find you but it was great it was a great apprenticeship because you Ooh. had to learn loads of stuff because yeah. you couldn't go back and play the same stuff three weeks time. No, I was, yeah. yeah, and there was a lot of bases about it. Yeah, tons of bases, and people used to come up to us and give us cassettes and say, "You guys should learn this." So we learned things like "Drift Away" by Dobie Gray. We learned things like early Doobie Brothers tracks and stuff cool. like this. Mm. They were chucking all these cassettes at us again of music that wasn't available in East Anglia particularly, no, and you didn't really hear it on the radio because I used yeah. to listen to the Pirates a lot. Yeah. But when the pirates all stopped, I cried when they closed down the pirates. I was cleaning my bike in the garage, and I thought. And then you had bloody Tony Blackburn, Smiley Blackburn, Radio One. It was the saviour of the world, mm. which we all know, of course, it's not or it wasn't. But anyway, so I, I got, again, we through the US bases, we learnt all this yeah. material. Yeah. We weren't very good, but we got better all the time. We well, got, it's a good, it's a good, it's a good uh, apprenticeship, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it's a good way to hone your craft. Yeah. Is a word. So, um, and we've all played the basis here, you know, yeah, it's yeah. just a great, great way to put Good off. musical education for us all.
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, a, and a very appreciative audience. Well, they were. That was the one thing I did notice from from day one that they actually were a lot more enthusiastic. As mm. I said, we weren't very good initially, but we got good in the end because we just had to. Just the yeah, we used yeah. to rehearse every Sunday. We we go and rehearse every Sunday afternoon in Upwell Village Hall. Yeah, yeah. And we'd have a blackboard and we'd write down four songs or five songs on that, and we basically we'd stay there until we learnt those four or five songs. Yeah, yeah. And we keep the other ones up, so we kept adding to our set. So we ended up with and then. Because of a little bit of drug jiggery pokery, mm-hmm. a chap called Ray Owens from Juicy Lucy ended up living in Guy Hearn, so should we say hiding out from people. So Tangent got to back Ray Owens. Right. Okay. He joined us for a little while and we did a gig on the embankment at Peterborough. And just I, for the people in podcast land, just explain who Ray Owens was. Ray Owens was a, a, a very gangly, tall, really cool-looking black guy with a turban who who played a flying V guitar. Excellent. And he sang with a band called Juicy Lucy. I've heard of them, Juicy Lucy. Yeah, yeah. I've heard, I've heard yeah. of Juicy Lucy. Well, their first album cover was a rather voluptuous lady covered in fruit, which, of course, <laughs> I always had a liking for fruit myself. Yeah, you know. yeah of course. Um, and it, I think it got banned by WH Smiths and stuff like that. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, but it was a, it was an album that he had he had one hit single which was a cover of the old um, Who Do You Love, which is the old sort of like you know what's his Bo Diddley sort yeah, of thing, yeah. you know. Yeah. That. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and he but he something weird had happened in London. I didn't probe. He ended up hiding out in a little cottage in Guy Hearn. Then he ended up looking for someone to play with, which I thought if you were hiding out with someone, the last thing you, you want to be do doing is playing was out. Playing yeah. out. But he did, and we did this gig with the heavy metal kids oh yeah on, yeah on, yeah with when I yeah, yeah, yeah the heavy metal kids yeah and because I, I, I had a i had a keyboard that i'd borrowed from a friend um, of mine one of my favorite bass players heavy metal kids is uh, from the pistols yeah yeah um oh, matlock Glenn Mac- yeah. who's with blondie now yeah 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 but right, yeah. yeah he's uh the he's with blondie now but done their talk recently done their tour and used to do a side project with uh, Clem Burke. Yeah, well, they they actually... Was that Midger? Sorry, Dick. Was that Midger in Heavy Metal Kids as well? No, it was, so. a, it was a guitarist called Mickey Waller. The drummer was called Keith Boyce. The keyboard player was called Danny Perrionel, who ended up with UFO and a few other people. And the bass player was Ronnie Thomas when we played with them, but he didn't like. There was a lot of drugs and booze around that band yeah, at the time, yeah. well, and yeah. it was you know for us, for our little Norfolk boys, you know Norfolk and Suffolk boys, and yeah. you know coming to a gig like that, and we saw all this. They had all this amazing gear. It's yeah. like so much better than our rubbish, and you know, and and I was talking to the keyboard player. Danny Perrineau and I had real keyboard envy do you know what I mean it was awful because mm. I had this little electric piano and a really nasty little synthesizer made by Davoli a little Italian for awful thing and he had one sound on it it went like that and that was about it really it was monophonic <laughs> but you know I used it a lot there was a lot of with the you know yeah, portmento yeah, 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 yeah. fantastic I was a real innovator but I looked at all his gear he had a Hammond organ a Wurlitzer piano and a, and a mini mood and everything else and I was like oh it's amazing he looked at me he said do you want to borrow it and I said really he said yeah you can't change any of the settings on either the synth or the Hammond but you can use it because it's up there anyway 
because they obviously sound checked and got all their stuff up. Yeah, yeah. Before we That's very generous. Yeah, no, I've got another story about him. I, I I met him again in New York about twelve years later in a in a nightclub in New York. And was he playing? Was he? Yeah, he's, he does lots of things, Danny. He's originally, I think, he's South American, but he he. And bizarrely enough, he ended up knowing a singer that I worked with in yet another band that was nothing to do with any of this mm. when I was living in Ireland and living living in New York. It's you know, it's six degrees of separation anyway. Yeah, yeah, of but he lent me his gear and I was abs- in absolute heaven. I just I'd never played a Hammond organ yeah. before, ever. Well, I had, I think I tried one somewhere, but not as in, yeah, in, in anger. In a gig, yeah, in in a gig, gig and he had a world at piano and I just I was great. I, I felt you know, yeah, great. I felt like I'd arrived. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> from that band, where did you go to from there? Because obviously, you got into session work. Yeah, well, I, I, I sort of did, but I, 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 I went with that band. Then I moved down to London and become a pop star, which obviously worked like uh, a lot of us do. Yeah, I went down there and I played with loads of different bands, and we, we had we we did demos and we went to record companies, and I remember sobbing my little heart out on the embankment because I was with this band and we'd been to Decca Records and the bloke had literally, I think it was the, the bass player's dad knew someone at Decca and he'd got our tapes heard by Decca and basically this bloke didn't want to didn't want to play him. We were sat in a hot room with him. He put the tapes on really loud, just didn't say a word and then pulled the tape out of the machine and threw it back across and said, actually said the words, I hope you've all got proper jobs, lads. Ah, so we all went Very encouraging. Where well, we all sat and cried on the embankment quite a lot, you know. Uh, but I, I carried on regardless, did a few bits and pieces. And then and then I sort of like, uh, you know, different different bands in London. I didn't really do any session work as such at that point. That came no. a bit later. Right. But I'd seen a band at the West Runcton Pavilion called Crow yes. a few years ago with this yes. bloke with lace up the front uh, Converse boots on and a big old beard and a hat and everything, and I and I saw them. I thought they look bloody great. They look really, they look re- oh you know. And I remember them, and, and they were all, they were auditioning for people through the Melody Maker because everyone used to buy the Melody Maker, yeah, yeah. and there was like people wanted in the back, and so I answered this ad and it, it's and I went down to this rehearsal place in Walton on the Nays, which was a rich person's squash court that they'd borrowed. What? And it was the Buster James band yeah. uh, with completely different people from the people that are in it now. Mm. Uh, Tony Smith on drums, who sadly died. Jeff Hollis on bass, who sadly died. Rob Hon- uh, Rob uh, Seals on guitar, who lives over in Alsham still. Yeah, and, yeah. and Roger on vocals and, and me. And I was replacing a keyboard player and we kind of got on like a house on fire it all seemed to make perfect sense, sense. Yeah. And, and i realized who they were and the and the thing is i'd i'd been with lots of different bands but the thing about that mob was and it's still true today you know is that they had a proper front man yeah they had a real i'd worked with lots of bands yeah. and we'd done lots of gigs and we'd done all this and we'd had singers and i'd sometimes i'd even sung in bands but this was a different thing altogether yeah. you know he didn't play an instrument apart from a great big cowbell that he hit with the broom handle <laughs> and 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 that was it and and he was a front man and it was like oh and suddenly i realized the whole power of the thing the whole way if you get what year room, would that be Dick? 
Oh, Lord. Uh, probably about 76. Right. Uh, whereabouts were they based at that time? Well, Raj lived in Alton Broad, and but the t- Jeff and Rob lived in a little prefab in Walton on the Nays. Right. They had they very poor. They used to go out shooting rabbits to eat, and they used to try and pull women in 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 bars and nightclubs to try and get a warm house to stay in. Right. Yeah. They usually ended up getting something else to the, the bargain as well. But I think they had three socks between them. They used to rotate <laughs> rotate the spare sock. You know, yeah, yeah. it was all pretty grim. But it but the band had a load of work. You know, again yeah, we yeah. we had an agent, and they were chucking us out all over the place. You know, we would driving up to Newcastle and, and, and we supported a few names as well. I mean, we, you know, we supported a few, well, agent was called, I think the agency was called Tramp, but they, they got us out and we got good reviews in Melody Maker and Sounds and yeah, yeah. all that stuff. And people said, you know, and then we got a record deal with a production company and went and made an album that never got released because the guy that was owned the company oh. sort of made some of the money disappear. Mm-hmm. Um, we also found out he was walking into major record labels demanding ludicrous amounts of money for us. Going, I've got this band here. We've already done the album. I want, I want 80 grand or something. Which don't forget, in 1970, you might, a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, a lot of money. Have you, have you got a copy of that? Yeah, album? I have. Yeah, yeah. So it exists only on up, stand up well today. Um, yeah, let's just say it's of its time okay. you know yeah, i mean yeah. i i wrote quite a lot of the album with me yeah. and me and rob the band had two or three songs already which is still in the set like hold on and stuff like that but me i got on well with rob and we wrote two or three good ones together and then we needed more material so i wrote another four or five on my own and and that's how and we're still doing some of those songs to this day wow which is a <laughs> bit yeah, scary yeah yeah because yeah. we um We've had a previous guest in here who recorded to Marriott, who recorded yeah, drums, I believe, on that album. He Is did that... at the Elephant Studio. At the yeah. Elephant Studio, which yeah. nicely dovetails into how I got my first session. Ah. Because I loved the Elephant Studios, and it was owned and run by a couple called uh, Graham Sharp and Nick Robbins. Lovely, lovely people. Graham Sharp was an ex civil servant. I think he was an ex spy, but. He used to get his shirts laundered and wear cravats and very nice little peaked caps. He was a really oddball mm. character. And they had a cat called Dolby. <laughs> and everyone smoked in those days. And they used to go down to the studio and sit in Graham's office. And we used to work our way through a packet of Embassy Reds and drink endless cups of coffee. And Buster James did some recording down there. But Nick phoned me up one day and said, uh, I've got a session for you if you're up for it. And I said, oh... I've never really done one. And, he, and I went, and he was lovely, Nick. He's still around. He he runs a thing in London called Sound Mastering. He's, he's actually, that's his thing now. He, I think he's a the sort of managed director of it all. Um, and he said, listen, mate. He said, I'll give you a few pointers, right, about session pain. He said, right, right. They don't want to be your friend necessarily. They don't want an opinion on the track. They don't really want, you know, they. He said sometimes they're they're friendly, but just basically keep your trap shut and try and find out what they want you to do, and all. Yeah. J- just listen, listen. Don't yak. I mean, I'm, I yak it incessantly now, but uh, but in that, you know, he said just sit there and listen. And he got me a session with Loudon Wainwright the Third. Oh, 
Right. American singer-songwriter who was based in England because he'd married one of the that folk couple, Shirley and uh, what were they called? Um, they're, they're, they're basically Loudon Wainwright and, and her are the parents of Martha Wainwright. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I can't. Anyway, hmm. Shirley McGarrigal or something, Anna, Anna McGarrigal oh, or yeah, something. Yeah, Shirley yeah. and and, but he had a song called Waitress, and he wanted some piano on it. And the elephant had a lovely old uh, baby grand piano, and I just went in there, and he he was quite dry and sarcastic, which I think that's his default status anyway, and. Um, I had to listen to this track and it was basically just an acoustic guitar and a sort of tambourine on it, actually, I think. And he just said, I want some sort of stride piano, nothing too, you know, intrusive. And I did it and got paid and went and went home and thought, oh, I've just done a session. And that, you know, it was like, yeah, and yeah. all the advice that Nick gave me is still true for anybody today. It's like, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah. you know, but you, you, got to, you can't go in oh, it's me, I'm great, I'm wonderful, I can do this, isn't this amazing? You know, it's like, no, just listen to the song and try and work out what they want. Okay, Richard, so we were talking about you did your first session. Um, and Obviously, at that time, you were... You weren't in Crow or Buster James anymore. That was coming to an end. Or what? What it, happened there? And then where did you go on from there? Well, that had just folded. Really, we kept going for a little while. Uh, our gear was falling apart. We didn't have any money. We had started gigs, but and uh, then Roger had had enough. He sort of went back home and because he had two small children, started working offshore actually. And they, we tried to keep the Buster James name going, but with a different singer and a and a different bass player. And it, it, to be honest, it was a higgledy piggledy right old. Yes, and it wasn't. It, we had a couple of rehearsals, but it was a singer yeah. called Gus Eden. It was very good. Played sax, actually, really good. Anyway, so in the meantime, Andy Barnett, who used to be yeah. the Buster James FM guitar player, yeah, he used to come and mix for us on our M and M twelve channel mixer. <laughs> and uh, but he cool. used to bring his SG along because mm. he always hoped that during the, I think he hoped that Rob, our guitarist, would break his arm. Or something <laughs> fall down because he used to. He, after we'd sound check, he used to plug. Rob had a beautiful old Bay JC30, which, as your listeners maybe may know, is a you know classic vintage amp, you know. And Andy would plug into that and make a racket, and he, he was already pretty good. I'd stayed in touch with him, and he was in a band called Urchin. Right. Yeah. Have you heard of them, Sam? Yes, I have. You yeah. should have done. Yeah, because they are connected with Simon, actually. Yeah. Oh. Because the lead singer and guitarist in Urchin was a certain Adrian Smith, who ended ah. up with that, that well-known beat combo. <laughs> yes. The Iron Maiden. <laughs> the Iron Maiden. The Iron Maiden. Yes. And, uh, and Adrian at the time, and me and Andy, we, we were, I joined Urchin as a keyboard player. I didn't play guitar at all in Urchin because they had, they would stay basically to be brutal. They had two great guitarists in the band anyway. And, uh, and I, and I joined them and we, again, we did a whole bunch of gigs around London. All we were doing the same circuit as a lot of the new wave of British heavy metal bands were doing. Yeah, yeah. We were a bit more melodic because we actually used backing vocals and we had keyboards, which, as you know, is a, mm. and it, I tell you, this is, you know, I'm not speaking out of turn here, but we used to go and see our rivals and go, oh, they're not very good. Oh, well, bloody hell, no. We're much better than they are. We used to go in the Ruskin Arms and watch Maiden and, oh, they, oh, they, oh and all those thunder flashes. Oh, you know, we're, we're much cooler than they are. And of course, they got the deal and we did. 
<laughs> you know, so you know all that. And he ended up joining, of course. Yeah, and Adrian yeah. just all that sort of early. You know what it's like. You know, there was you know. Yeah, people yeah, get a bit yeah. bitchy. It's all a bit. It can all get a yeah, bit yeah, sort yeah. of spinal competitive, tap. isn't it? But, yeah, it's yeah. quite competitive because we couldn't understand because we thought we were great. And yeah, you know, I think you know, and actually, you know, Adrian. Is a, a is a lovely bloke. B is a really good singer and really good guitarist, and he's always had interests outside of metal and stuff. You know, yeah, yeah. he's quite happy to listen to Tom Petty and Jackson Brown and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, he's he's got that other side to him as well. You know, so mm. and and we have carried on with them for a, a, a while. And I was living down in London, and it all. It was all bowling along. I did a few more sessions for various odd people. We did some recordings with Urchin, which are available courtesy of our dodgy manager, who's put it all up online. Oh, well, we'll never see a penny from that, will I? <laughs> um, he's sort of re-released all these four-track demos we did. But, and yeah, I, I, I kind of went on from there, and I hovered around London. I lived in sort of like North London, and I was... I, I worked for Casio for a while. Which, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. They, yeah. Well, they, they basically became a keyboard company. Mm. So I worked as a sort of demonstrator and product manager for them, which was really good fun because they never really knew where I was. Mm. So Handy. And I could hang out with all the, I remember they gave me a load of stuff and say, Oh, uh, we, yeah, people want to sponsor us. Uh, so, or we want, we want people to sponsor us. So go and give this stuff to Vince Clark from Erasure. Go and give one of these keyboards to Jules Holland. Go down to Blamange. Do you remember the bomb? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Go and give some keyboards to Blamange and take some photographs. Oh, all right then. I'll do that then. Yeah. yeah and, and so, but in the, in the midst of all that, I was doing a lot of little bits and pieces of session work with, with various people. And Andy and me were st- after Urchin broke up. Was Adrian obviously got the call? Yeah. And I remember having a meeting. I think it was in a pub somewhere in Victoria Park in East London with Adrian. And he sat there, and he was he was really quite upset. He said, "Like, oh, nah, you know, well, I've been off. You know, mm, ah, well, I've been off. They would spit it out. <laughs> you know, spit it out because he's very, he's you know, he's a genuinely nice bloke. You know, he yeah, likes yeah. fishing. You know, he's a really laid back character most of the time. Is so he didn't want to let you down? Well, all. no. And we went, and he said, "Well, you know, he's, he said, why are you even talking to it? go? If yeah. it happened to any of us, we'd be like." Bye. So it's been great, lads, but see ya. You know, I'm on the next bus out, you know, and, 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 and that obviously, you know, but I, I, I did a, I did a bits and pieces with various oddball people that I met, including a, I, there was a band called the Savoys, which was a guy that ended up becoming the MD of EMI for a little while called Tony Wadsworth. And we had a bass player called Paul Martinez, who was in Pace Ashton and Lord and Strength and all those bands. Also played Robert Plant, who I'm still in touch with, Mm -hmm. Paul. And, yeah, we did some recording with a sax player called Dave Winthrop, who's the saddest man in show business, (laughs) because he was originally in a band that were rehearsing in Shepherd's Bush for their third album, and he... He was just married, and he said, "Oh, I've been offered, I've been offered a lot of money to join the new Seekers show band on a cruise." And they all went, oh, "Okay, Dave, yeah, I can see." He said, "Because I was listening to the album we rehearsed and thinking, oh, I don't really see this. It was Super Tramp." Oh, okay. Oh, <laughs> he left Super Tramp voluntarily after two albums hmm. because he didn't see it. He couldn't see it. they were rehearsing Crime in the Century, and he, hmm. he'll tell you the story. You know, he's still around. He lives down in Kent somewhere, but he, he, you know, he. 
He's, you know. Wow. And all he did after that was he, I think he played sax with Secret Affair, who were a mod band for about 10 minutes. And, <laughs> and then after that, but that's that's Dave's story, which is he's mm. one of the saddest men in the <laughs> I can come. understand why. Well, you know, we all do it. He said, yeah. I, he's still telling, he said, I couldn't hear it. And then they got Ken Scott involved as a producer to do that third album and everything changed. Changed, yeah. yeah. Because the first two albums just hadn't sold. The first mm. two, Indelibly Stamped and Dragonfly, they were called. They're nonsense, I know. Um, <laughs> and and they hadn't just... And Dave said, well, it sounded like the same. And I thought, yeah. well, the first two didn't crack it. They were all trying to live on 15 quid a week each from the... the meager advance they got in a yeah. sweaty old basement in shepherd's bush rehearsing and yeah, yeah, yeah. You suddenly you get offered 300 pound a week to go and play with the new seekers on a cruise yeah. well yeah, well you know you can yeah well you, you can, can kind of understand it can't don't forget yeah. this is like 80s and then yeah. i had a really good break i had a really really good break because um i a friend of mine who was also in Buster James, believe it or not. I mean, this is all it's about six degrees of separation. I mean, I think Simon was going to play drums for us at one point. I think I can't remember. Wait, I, Simon? I don't know. I, I, I think yeah. there was a moment when because Paul, what Paul, our current drummer, wanted to leave or he was having a he just wanted he's wanted some time off. I know we were looking around and I think your name. He might have talked about it. I yeah, mean, yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't remember, but you know, and then obviously, you know, Simon's playing with Steve Harris now from, yeah. from Maiden, and I was playing in a band with uh, Adrian from Maiden. So it's all that. Everything. It's, it's all interlocked. Oh, very much so. It really is all interlocked. Yeah. yeah. Now, yeah. So after that, my friend Alan Jones, who briefly played guitar, was working for A and M Records. In fact, he was running Rondor Publishing for a while. And he phoned me up and said, "I've got a gig for you." Oh, and what's that? Oh, there's a band called The Lover Speaks. They just finished an album and they're going out on tour with Eurythmics. Ah, I knew that you'd supported or in uh, yeah, a band yeah. that you played in. The yeah, yeah, yeah. So we rhythms. went out and did these. It was talk about baptism of fire. It was like, oh right, okay. Uh, how many dates in the tour? Oh well, there's six nights at Wembley. And there's three nights at the NEC in Birmingham, and there's four nights at the SEC in Glasgow, and then there's Brighton Centre, and then there's some gigs in Europe, and they put this band together mm. around the Lover Speaks because the album had been done at vast expense in uh, in America with Jimmy Iovine producing with Springsteen's keyboard player and all mm. these session luminaries, and when they came back to tour it, they put a band together over here, including myself and one guy Pratt who I'm still yeah. friendly with, because ah, Guy joined Pink Floyd. One of yeah, my yeah. favourite players. Yeah, well, Guy... Great guy, player. Guy, guy owns a, a... Guy's got a Burberry raincoat that I gave him in Glasgow. Have you been seeing the source before? I, he, I phoned him up and said, come on, mate, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I, I wanted the Albert Hall, but he said, look, you, he said it's the Albert Hall's ridiculous, oh, yeah, you know. It's like yeah. the, the, the guest list for the Albert Halls. So I went to see him at Dumont for Hall in Leicester, and I thought they were absolutely amazing. Fantastic. And I loved it, because Nick Mason looked so happy, 78 years old, he was playing out of his skin. Guys, Gary Kemp is a superb musician, you know. Yeah. You don't get to write a load of great number one pop hits and be no. a bit of, no, absolutely be a bit of a slouch. And uh, and that so that led on to me working as a kind of house musician at Dave Stewart's studio because when the tour ended, he came up to me after a gig. And he, again, he's a very approachable guy. And he said, uh, what are you doing uh, after this? And I went, oh, you know, nothing definite. He said, oh, I'll come down to the church. He just bought a magnificent old church in Crouch End and he was kitting it out and he put a production team together with me a drummer called Paul 
uh, Waller, not to be confused with Paul Weller, but Paul Waller, who was in a band called Animal Nightlife. Yes. And he's a drummer and programmer. And a guitarist called John Beebe, who had a guitar shop in Crouch End, who was just a mate of Dave's. He's a fantastic guitarist, but basically had a little shop full of very expensive guitars. And we were this production team, and Dave threw all these acts at us that he'd collected, because he'd set up his own publishing company, which is called Anxious Publishing and Anxious Records. And he'd signed all these people up, and he wanted people to work with him you know so we ended up writing and recording for about four different lots of lots of projects you know different artists none of it saw the light of day because dave at this point was spending money like water he'd spent millions on the church yeah Mm. and there was a whole point where the accountants came in and went uh dave um yeah everything's good but uh we need to see some return from this you know and and, i mean we worked on an album with a singer called rebecca deruvo who's now a video jock on sort of european mtv i believe Mm. who was a absolutely drug riddled nymphomaniac loony because uh, she was uh she was 18 I... at the time and uh <laughs> she was living in dave's flat in maida vale and we were writing all these songs for her she had a great voice she had a voice not unlike lulu and i don't there's nothing lulu's got a great voice mm, she has powerful yeah, she has. strong you know, yeah slightly bluesy voice because lulu grew up you know, playing gigs with Alex Harvey in Scotland. I guess you yeah. remember seeing an interview with her where she said, oh, we all wanted to be Alec- where Alex Harvey was at the time with his big soul band, you know. Mm. And she did that blues thing with Martin Scorsese, that film where she was yeah, yeah. sort of playing, singing, I think it was Drowning My Own Tears with Jeff Beck on guitar. I mean, amazing. Anyway, that was what Rebecca DeRuvo's voice sounded like. But unfortunately, she was completely out of control. And we mm. wrote all these songs for her and tried to get her in to do a vocal and uh, it was mayhem it was mayhem but at the time this was 1986 probably 87 i was getting paid loads of money for just showing up to work at the church we all were we were all Mm. you know and probably only three days a week maybe four days a week but i think we were all getting 150 quid a day or 200 quid a day then then You know, and, and, and I mean, and we did all this, and it's really sad, actually. I've got some recordings somewhere that I can't do anything with because I, I don't know legally what, you know, I used to take away rough mixes sometimes of stuff mm. we've been working on, but I, you know. What did, oh, what did she go on to do then? She's now on, well, I don't know, well, I haven't seen her for years, but about 20 years ago or 10, maybe 15 years ago, I was some out in Germany and she was working for MTV Europe. She oh, right. Was, okay. she, was a, right. Uh, ah, right. she was a video jock on mm. MTV Europe, you know. Um, right. You know, a very attractive, you know, young Swedish, you know, literally bombshell, but totally out of control. Right. I mean, she partied hard. And when we tried to get her in to do vocals sometimes, it was just... Mm. So did that did that church did that all fold then? Yeah, it sort of folded. It hung around for a little while until the accountants came in and said, "Dave, you need to start making money out of this. You know, you can't keep paying all these people." And he, I mean, they even had the rec room, the recreation room, done in Annie's clan tartan carpet, which I saw the bill for that. That was a staggering amount of money. You wow. know, mm. you know, custom weave clan tartan carpet all over the floor. <laughs> you know, for people to drop cocaine and fag butts in you know it's just like you know wow so what did you do when that folded what happened well i I carried on i I ended up playing the bizarrest thing i've ever done and it was very bizarre it's through the elephant studios again 
uh, Graham phoned me up and said, oh, um, there's a really prestigious gig. Are you up for doing it? And I said, yeah, who? Why? When? And he went, I can't really tell you. And I said, don't, well, don't, that's ridiculous, isn't it? You know, you can't really. He said, look, just go to Nomis Studios. Nomis is a big rehearsal studio in London owned by Simon Napier, Bell Henson. Yeah. Nomis. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It, yeah. Yeah. You play their song? Yeah. I've rehearsed there. Yeah, yeah. Well, they, they've got show, they've got, you know, they do show, you know, sort of like, you know, album launches and shows. It was it was basically built for Wham, I think, or because he used to manage Wham, and I think he was a yeah, yeah. bit of an entrepreneur and in the early days. Anyway, so I went down there and met uh, a bass player called Andy Pask, who is famous for, uh, he's a very good bass player, but he co-wrote the theme to The Bill. <laughs> along with the, cool. drummer, the drummer Charlie Morgan who that's right the, played well Charlie, Charlie, yeah Charlie, Charlie and I've got another story about that but I'm not going to tell you that on air because it's really rude and you'll have okay. to bleep it all out okay. excellent um, but I, I met Andy Pask and he said oh right okay uh, it's Nigel Kennedy oh right violin man yeah he's done an album for EMI called Let Loose because he got fed up with being on the classical circuit so Daryl Way from Curved Air and a band called Wolf had given him an electric violin so he got this electric violin he'd gone down to Denmark Street which was the hub of the music industry at the time and bought a boss pedal board with seven or eight guitar pedals in it plugged his violin into it and got a guitar out and was randomly treading on pedals making all sorts of unholy racket um, <laughs> it all seemed really totally uncoordinated and strange to me but because he was Nigel Carey people took it all very seriously yeah, mm. of course. and he'd made this album called Let Loose which as far as I gather was completely improvised doesn't he live a, doesn't he live in Eastern Europe yeah, he lives in, I think he lives in Prague I think he's married to he's, yeah, uh, I thought he lived Prague or Belgrade he lives out that way yeah he? Uh, a lot of people do. Dan Reed does as well. Dan Reed, Dan Reed okay. lives in Prague. Mm -hmm. A lot of people have made their homes out in Europe, you know. For, yeah, yeah. But but anyway, so I had this totally bizarre thing where I said, I'd never even heard the album. He said, don't worry about it. It was just made it up. He well, said, stick with me. I've, I, he had a note of all the keys. Because he's just basically, you do 16 bars in G minor and then go to C sharp major. And you know, like random yeah, key yeah, changes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they had the drummer was um, the drummer was Brett Morgan, whose dad Barry Morgan owned Morgan, Morgan Studios, Studios. Mm. and Barry Morgan was Blue Mink as well. Mm. Uh, he was like another, and Brett, his son, was equally very very good drummer and we had a guitarist called mitch dalton who sat on a fishing stool who's still around and he passed on bass and me and another keyboard player called john hurst john hurst's job was to make noise what? they call it sound design it's a synthesizer okay. ambient floaty stuff that we are all right yeah <laughs> <laughs> like this, which he did very well actually and my job was to play the if you like, proper keyboards like the piano or whatever yeah so. yeah yeah but it was just ridiculous what sort of gear were you using were you using casio because you said you were demonstrating were you using casio then or no what? no i'd oh i'd gone from casio now i'd i'd i keep finding pictures of me with the most ludicrously over the top expensive gear that i've all owned and sold and flogged and bought on i think for that gig i think i had a fender Rhodes. oh right uh and a jupiter 8 which okay. big old rolling yeah wow. i remember the jupiter 8 it never balanced quite right on top of the fender rose because it had a curved top so i ended up wedging it up with fag packets and all sorts of things to stop it but anyway that's what i did for that but it was the weirdest thing because he, he was only going to do two gigs mm. one was a press launch at the rock garden and the other was at the purcell rooms 
Oh, is, you know, posh, posh yeah, classical yeah. venue. Yeah. So we did these two gigs and got fantastic reviews and all the Sunday papers. And then again, his manager came in and said, all right, Nigel, you've had your fun. It's time to get back on the classical circuit. This is going nowhere. They want to hear the Brahms violin concerto. They want to hear the Four Seasons. Oh, yeah, yeah, they yeah. don't want to hear you pretending to be Frank Zappa mm. on a, you know, on a violin. Well, maybe they did. Some people Well, might. I mean, it, it got very well received. It got, you know, but it was like... And Kennedy's an absolutely mercurial, bizarre... Person. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't really get to know him that well at all. It was like, mm. hey, man, are you? Oh, all right, Mums. Because I think the, the original keyboard player had done the album had decided that he was going to go and live on a small Philippine island as a woman or something. <laughs> there was some back, there was some backstory <laughs> to that as well. This is why I got called in at the last minute, because they literally had booked these gigs, and this guy had suddenly thought, nope. No, that's it. I've had enough. It's all going to be taken away and I'm going to become Dolores. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, Braithwaite. Yeah. And live on an island in the middle of the Philippines. Right, Richard. So you did the Nigel Kennedy thing. Obviously had a great time doing that. Um, what happened after that? I, I just continued to be a jobbing a jobbing muso person. I ended up working for a couple of companies as like a product manager, demonstrator, all sorts of stuff, just to kind of, uh, yeah, just basically to, uh, to earn a living. But in between all that, I was doing, I was doing various sort of session things. You know, I, I, I got involved down in Swindon with a few different people, including a fantastic drummer called Kevin Wilkinson, who was in a band called China Crisis. And yeah, unfortunately, yeah. He, no, he's no longer with us either. He killed mm. himself, bless him. But he was he played with Squeeze and all sorts of Tori Amos and all those kind of people. And he had a little project going down there, and we, and we did a bit of that. And, you know, basically the phone... You know, I'm not saying I was an in-demand guy, but the phone would ring. I mean through the connections you make. I mean, I ended yeah, yeah. up in a band with Andy Barnett again. Yeah, yeah. Right. Working for a guy called Eddie Armani, who was just an amazing character. I think he was Tina Turner's hairdresser. Um, <laughs> he was this... Um, but he, you Or know, Andy Barnett should have been having the surname Barnett. Well, yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, and I ended up, I'd sort of playing with them. We did some recording. Used to hang out in Trident Studios yeah, a lot. Yeah, because Trident, yeah. Andy was managed by the people that owned Trident. Then towards the end of the 80s, Adrian Smith, uh, basically, I, I really don't know the politics of it, so it's probably not me, it's probably not going to say anything, but there was a point, obviously, when Adrian left Maiden, but before he did that, he got a deal. I think Maiden's deal was up with EMI and they went in and said, right, okay, we're going to re-sign, but our boys, we want a deal for Bruce's album and then we want a deal for Adrian's album. Mm-hmm. So we we got, I think they got loads of money out of EMI. Hmm. And I started working on an album with Adrian Smith, which was a remarkable thing because there were three guitarists involved. There was uh, Adrian, obviously. Yeah. And, a uh, chap called and uh, Dave Bucket Colwell, who's was yeah, in yeah. bad company, bad company, yeah, yeah, humble yeah. pie, and all sorts of things. Yeah, and and Andy Barnett, and we wrote this album in very confused circumstances, partly in the Bahamas and partly in a basement flat in Maida Vale that I think might have been owned by Maiden's management. I'm not sure. It was all a bit of a blur. <laughs> and I thought, and I thought, right, what chance? I'm a keyboard player. Oh, we had a bass player that had six strings on his bass as well. So. Um, That's lost look, me. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm looking. Oh, we, oh, we ended up with Zach Starkey on drums. We originally, oh, originally going to wow. do it with Nico, but we ended up with Zach on drums, which was great. 
because yeah. he is a fantastic drummer at the time he was a very angry young man he was drinking and drugging a lot uh but he was a fireball to work with he really was hmm. um and we ended and, I, and the funny thing is the i listened to the album again the other day i'm amazed just like there's loads of keyboards on it Right. And I, I think you know, it's, it's incredible, really, because I remember how we did it. Because you got three guitarists, and they all had to have their bit. Yeah, of course. Mm. Quite a lot of the tracks would have three guitars, <laughs> but there's all these keyboards, and I'm and I'm amazed at the mix as well, because you can hear most. Was of that them. released in? Oh yeah, it was an EMI record. It was called Silver and Gold. It was an ASAP. Yeah, I remember it. Yeah. Adrian Smith and Project. It's still available. You know, there are people all over the world that have made it their holy grail. I went really? to Sweden once to do a gig with somebody else. And this guy came up to me and he said, uh, you're Richard Young. And I was like, I can't do the Swedish accent, you know. And uh, I said, yeah. He said, you played with Adrian Smith. And I said, yeah, I did. Oh. He said, would you? And, and there were a couple of us. And he dragged us back to this apartment. And he had a shrine in a room. That, and he, he had copies of this album and singles and picture discs that I hadn't even seen. I didn't know oh, wow. where the stuff had come out. So we spent a and he was like, he was almost like bowing. I said, stop it, you know, like, I'll sign everything, whatever. Mm. Buy me a drink, I'll sign everything, you know, and all. And, but, but that was interesting. We did do a few gigs, but I, I don't know what was going on Maiden, but I know that Bruce's album, Tattooed Millionaire, did pretty well as well. But Adrian's album did do that well. And I think partly because I remember a review we got in Q magazine where it sort of went, oh, well, I wouldn't have thought this was a bloke that was in Iron Maiden. It's far too sophisticated for, you right, know, yeah, so, yeah, oh, yeah, no, yeah. don't say things like that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, People yeah. are so stupid and tactless. You know, yeah, Adrian yeah, yeah. was trying out lots of things, you know, and it was almost like... It's um, got to be a copycat of Maiden or something. Yeah, yeah it's, yeah. well, you know, it's that's the nature of the beast. Yeah, that's that what happened. Or the number of the yeah, beast. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, um, but, but I mean, it is, you know, and, and yeah. a lot of the reviews were saying, oh, it's quite interesting. It's almost like a bit of a prog album, this, you know, and I mean, by that point, I'd accumulated vast amounts of keyboards. I mean, I just had stuff, you know, mm. coming out of my ears, you know. I'd, I'd, I'd almost had one of everything, you know, like a Mark II DX7 and... You know, I had a Prophet 5 that was the the latest MIDI one. I still had the Jupiter 8, which is a great synth. I had an Oberheim 12 voice synth, big old beast, you know. Uh, and I had a portable Hammond as well, which was really nice. And, and uh, at one point, I did end up with a... a um, Oh, I ended up with a Kurzweil as well, which is oh, right. a very underrated synthesizer. I've still got Kurzweil K2000, still use it. It's no, There's nothing like it. It's a completely unique thing. If you look up Ray Kurzweil on Wikipedia, you'll find out that he's actually an amazing character. He now does completely different things. Uh, nothing to do with uh, instruments at all. He's become a sort of modern-day existentialist-style philosopher and uh, <laughs> interesting. <Hey>. Yeah. <laughs> Life coach. Yeah, anyway, yeah, yeah. natural cool. story. So, yeah, so I went on with Adrian. We blundered our way through the 90s quite quite a lot. You know, I did, I did a lot of, again, just general playing with people. Nothing ever really came to anything. You know, no, it, no. It, it, you keep trying and you keep putting your toe in the water and you hope one day. I managed to make a living at it. And at that point as well, I started writing library music which is, you know, production music that yeah, people yeah. And I started to make a few quid out of that, and I did... Because yeah. you do a lot of producing now, don't yeah, you? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, I think everyone does, really. Everyone that's got a spare room and a Macintosh computer or a PC, can, you know, it's like mm. it's become the nature of the beast, and you, you immerse yourself in it. And yeah, yeah. I started out on tape, you know. I mean, mm. I started out doing 
doing tape things and all that, you know, and it was just, uh, to me, a, a computer's just a multi-track tape recorder without all the hassle of putting tape on it and having to get someone to line the machine up every day before you start recording, which yeah, is yeah, yeah. what used to sort of happen, you know. So it was, no, it was, it was that period of time, I, that was a massive learning curve because mm. everything was changing and, uh, you know, things were changing, the, the, you know, the exponential growth rate of technology it was shooting through the roof, absolutely yeah. Yeah, yeah. shooting. And, but gradually what was really nice about it was that, you know, the keyboards were starting to, you know, fade a little bit, certainly as far as recording and people weren't, weren't basing albums around keyboards. Yeah, yeah. They suddenly, you know, early nineties. They stay, you know, because you don't Oasis and people like that. Yeah, the guitar back. In. Yeah, well, well. I, to be honest, it sort of happened a bit in the seventies with punk as well. But then there was this kind of almost like backlash, and there was this whole mid period, the seventies, where the producer became the band more than the band did. Mm. And it's like, oh, well, Trevor Horn's going to do this, you know, or John mm. Leckie's going to do this, or what, you know, mm. we're going to get these names in, and the band almost just became a vehicle mm. for what a producer decided was going to be the sound yeah you know and, yeah. and a lot of those bands got really hacked off because a lot of men ended up not even playing on their own records mm. you know i do know nasher from frankie goes to hollywood you know and he's right. uh, he's not bitter no he is bitter um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, well just because of the way they were unceremoniously shuffled off when trevor horn decided basically you can all go home it's just me and Holly, mm. you know, and, and, oh, you can mime on top of the pops or, do, you know, do all yeah, the daddy yeah. shows and all that. That must be very demoralised. Well, I've, yeah, but I've heard the demos of Relax and they used to play it as a band, you know, and it actually sounded really good as a band, actually, you know, because yeah, yeah. Ed, the old drummer, bless him, you know, he's a right old, he's a right old tub thumping monkey, but it sounded, it sounded really good, actually. Yeah, yeah. I, mm. I, I don't know if you've, you've heard the demo. Never you know, heard no, the demos. Never heard no. demo, no. Well, you know, they were a band. They were a Liverpool band. They, they went into, what was I believe they used to have a studio in Liverpool called Amazon, which was bought by Phil Collins and turned into something else. Anyway, but they did them all there. They literally went in and recorded five or six tracks, and that's what got them the deal. But obviously, you know, it became a bit. But it was good for me because I knew a few of those people, and they would get me in. So can you do a bit of this and a bit of that? Oh, that's I did a lot of dance stuff with a a, mm. a band called Kane and Abel, who became Dry as a Bone, who had a minor dance hit with a song called one love i did a lot of mm. programming and stuff i mean i ended up bizarrely enough going back to vineyard studios because i knew someone who uh george greek chap uh they called him george the gay greek which and, and i think this is his whole personality and person and persona is defined by those words he was gay <laughs> he was greek and his name was george he was a very nice bloke very very friendly bloke uh i met him somewhere again probably through andy barnett or one of those people and he said oh come and he i spent three weeks in a you know in the basement programming drum patterns house drum patterns at 120 beats per minute mm. and putting in bass lines on various things and then just oh we use that for something else i never knew where any of it ended up yeah it could have been Sinita, it could have been Kylie, it could have been Banana Rama, it could have been Jason Donovan. I've no idea mm. because it was a little factory downstairs. Right. And you're never really quite sure what you were. And, and you got mm. paid for those. Yeah, I got paid for those. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, I did. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I started to make a bit of money out of all the library stuff and all these, I did a lot of these relaxation, new age albums, you know, where this, you know, 
Did I yeah, have a, yeah. a connection with a German company? And there's still quite a lot out there. You know, somewhere in Germany, you know, there's a there's a house for our waxing our legs in the bath to the sound of my piano. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Marvellous. Which, you know, always makes me quite happy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Why not? Think of stuff like that, really. Ooh. Yeah. So, right. um, so we'll bring you right up to the present day. So obviously yeah. you're still with Rog. Yeah. And the, and yeah. the guys. Hanging on. Hanging on in there. The skin of our teeth. Yeah, I yeah. mean, the pandemic hasn't been very kind to a lot of people. No, indeed. Um, you know, but I mean, I, I, I discovered, at the back end of the 90s, I discovered that I really like playing the guitar more than I like playing keyboards. I love playing pianos, but when I say keyboards, it's all a bit, it's all a bit, yeah, yeah, it's all a bit hairdressery. All these. You're using a cord, cord now, aren't you? No, I'm using a. No, I use a Nord. Ah, thank you, pardon. But I mean, I've just got a Nord, which has basically got piano and organ sounds in it, because yeah. I've worked out in all my playing that they're the sounds that always cut through. Yeah, if you're yeah. playing rock music or even pop music. Pianos and organs sound great. Synthesizers yeah. date. Mm. I mean, I still use them, and I use them quite a lot for, you know, just for effects and ambient sounds and all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's great, but, you know... You're right with the, what you're saying about they cut through. Cause they I've, do, I've you know. I've noticed that with the, with the lads that I play with. Yeah. yeah. You know, he uses a two or three, and that's it, because they sound great. Well, they work with guitars. The Absolutely, trouble is with synthesizers. Yeah. They bought out all these ludicrous synthesizers with had these huge stereo spreads of sounds mm. with delays and, you know, particularly Korg, loads of delay and loads of reverb, and you put them in a mix, and they took up so much space, there was no room left for anything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You I know, you were struggling to hear everything. Everything, drums, bass, guitars, you yeah. couldn't, you know, you had this wonderful wall of sound which sounded great on its own, but unless you're doing film music, and even if you're doing film music, you still have to tame it all down. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. you know, real stuff cuts through, you know, yeah, and I yeah. was really glad. And I just, you know, I went and bought myself an expensive acoustic guitar, and, and I thought, I just like this. I like playing acoustic guitar, I like singing, I like playing piano, and it's much easier than being in a band. Because you don't have to argue with anyone or rehearse apart from on your own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. And, and, and I started doing, not that anyone cares, but I started doing sort of solo albums and I'm on just, I'm just finishing up my seventh Fantastic. solo double so, album. Wow. Yeah, you know. I didn't so, realise you'd done that on your own. No, I don't, yeah, I don't. Oh. I mean, you know. Oh. I know no one really cares in the general scheme of things, but you know, like the next year coming, I'm, I've got a couple of gigs. I'm doing two stints at ely folk festival which is quite a nice folk festival right. i might do i'm going to do a stint at cambridge folk festival as well folks are very broad church now it's not yeah that it's is not, yeah. it's not what a lot of people yeah. think it is and there's a lot I of agree. great players out there yeah yeah well like boo hooadine who like boo hooadine who you obviously have yes. a connection with because you put him on with with your band at the you yeah. know he was the he was the headline act you know i don't know what boo is is he a folk artist i don't know he's a singer songwriter to me he's a lovely man you know, he's <laughs> the a, most I, funniest I, man i've ever met in my life I mean, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of genres out oh, there. Oh, yeah. I hate genres. In the end, it's like, I like music. I like listening to what I like listening to. I like playing. Yeah. I don't know what pocket it fits in. Is it Americana? Is it blues? Is it roots? Is it folk? Is it rock? I don't really know. Does they're it just, matter? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter yeah. to me. It never has done. I'm quite happy to listen to ACDC or Joni Mitchell. You know, I, um, you know. I'm, yeah, I'm like that. I, it doesn't matter to me. I don't. Yeah, no, it, right. If I like it and it sounds good, you know. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, I, I mean, my, my, I mean, on a personal front, I mean, I, I love my favourite band of all time is Thin Lizzy. But having said that, I really like listening to Bowie. Yeah, and they're worlds apart. Yeah, 
Um, but it's just, just, but just you know, from, great from, music. From that era, I could, I could go from Thin Lizzy to Prefab Sprout quite happily. Yeah, yeah. Or Thomas Dolby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if yeah. you want, if you want, if you want proper keyboard music, listen, just drag yeah, out all yeah, those yeah. Thomas Dolby albums because they're yeah. brilliant. Yeah, yeah. They're absolutely Clever brilliant. Guy. You know, Clever he was, guy. well, he still is. I think he teaches at MIT now, part time in the in the states. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, in in uh, in Boston, you know, I mean, he he. But I loved it all. I just, I don't really care as long as it's, if it sounds good to me, we can't all like the same stuff and I don't like the same, you know, there's, there's certain bands that I've never got the Red Hot Chili Peppers don't really do anything for me at all. I think Chad Smith's a fantastic drummer, but I just don't get them as a band. Yeah, that's, well, you know, that's fair enough. It's each to their own, isn't it? Each to their own. And I, and I, yeah, it's just something well, I don't get, Well, we're, we're, we're glad you love it all because we've absolutely loved you being here this evening, Rich. Yeah, it's been great. It's been, um, you've, you've led the way and, and uh, it's been great. So, yeah, um, thanks for coming over. That's right. Yeah, fantastic. And, uh, you know, thanks for coming all the way from Swarthen. Swarthen. <laughs> 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 yeah. And uh, I expect you'll be out with Roger somewhere or, or well, solo. I hope so. And... I, hope so. I think our, our next our next show, <laughs> I mean, I have an argument with a bloke in Peterborough out there. It's called Ian Graham. I, used to, I was in a mod band called The Name for a little while who was signed to Din Disc for a little while. <laughs> we, did the, we did the marquee. We opened up for the Jam and the Merton Parkers and all those. Anyway. Yeah. Well, but Ian's a funny, but he's a funny old boy, and he hates people putting things on Facebook like we have a show tonight because he said no, it's not a show, it's a gig in a pub. A show is in a big <laughs> hall with lots of lights yeah, and yeah. road crew. You yeah. can't call it a show. show. Yeah, you yeah, know, it's not a show. You're not going to be dancing around at the the old yeah. pig and gynecologist surrounded <laughs> by dry, you know, dry ice it's and a performance. A forty person yeah. road crew. <laughs> well, he hates it. So we have this little needle thing going online about because I love it. Or sometimes if I, you know, if I'm playing anywhere peterborough away which is where he lives so i have a show in peterborough and you know yeah <laughs> i know it winds him up so it just makes me laugh brilliant mm. well that's, that's great fantastic. right well it's been great so you know thanks for coming yeah and, thanks for uh, talking to me we've learned, to me we've learned like no that. it's been great because we've learned so much so yeah um, brilliant really good wonderful so uh thanks right, again mate. dick that's yeah. all right cheers yeah thank you thank you well simon that was mesmerizing i think yeah we, absolutely we, i mean just let dick talk about his life and uh and he and he's away and i found it thoroughly interesting yeah it's great because it, it's lovely just to let people talk and to to, to learn what they've, you know what they've been up to because we're talking about a life in music here yes right and people have done so many things and it's it's great to hear all those yeah, stories. Yeah, he's a great orator, isn't he? Yeah, really, really good. Um, uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed, enjoyed that myself, so... Yeah, well, we, we were kind of... I think when you got a, a guest like uh, Dick in, you just got to let him go. Yeah. You know, you just got to let him go. And, uh, and you know, he he's, his stories are magnificent. And, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. That, well, was, that was really, really it's, good. It's what it's all about, you know. We have yeah. people in... We want to hear what what they've done in their, in their musical careers, and it's great to hear all that stuff. Yeah, so that's right. I loved yeah. it. Yeah, me too. Yeah. What a great episode. Uh, some yeah. just remember that this guy really was right in it when the keyboard explosion... The that, keyboard that was eight, king. The keyboard was king, yeah. and this guy yes. was right yes. at the sharp end of it, yeah. wasn't he? He was, yeah. yeah. And, you know, yeah. you, you heard him talk about all the lovely keyboards he's got. Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah I mean, great, you know, he's, he's a great keyboard player. There's no doubt about it, you know. Um, so, yeah, 
Anyway, that's that's it for this week. So yep. fantastic. Little break for Christmas, I believe. Yeah, well, and then let's we'll... try not to eat too much. Yeah, well, you've already I've started. Got, I've got a tour to do. I don't be too fat. Yeah, yeah. So, well, obviously that's not working, is it? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, big thanks to our producer again, Mr. Mark Dunn. Thank Absolutely. you, Danny, for Thank all you, your mate. help. And uh, it's all been good. So we'll see you next time with some new great guests we've got lined up. So it's goodbye from me. That's goodbye from me. <laughs> <laughs>